0: My name's Chuck, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a member of Al-Anon. Uh, last night I lied a little. I said I was a grateful member of Al-Anon, but I've only been an active member six months, and I'm not quite sure I'm there yet. Um, so I just wanted to qualify that. But I'm getting there. I am blown away. I can't believe we're to this point already. This is uh, this has been what an experience. Um, they asked me to do this spirituality talk and I worked and worked, you know, and, like alcoholics like we do and And last night came around and I thought all I really need to do is recap the last four days and we're done I mean, you know, what more could we do uh, you know, first off, the venue um, for me, I love the mountains so that was awesome and and then the excitement Wednesday and everybody showing up and registering and, and all of you being so excited and The the new members banquet um, Thursday night and then our our oldest, longest sobriety is a new member this year. I mean, how cool is that? Um, Friday morning, the sunrise meeting, 100 people went up to the top of the pass and had a meeting. The sun came up and then to have that topped by all the different levels of courage that we witnessed at the Al-Anon-Alatine meeting. That at noon that day. I mean, they Well, those those meetings are always amazing. To follow that up with Curtis last night, Curtis, thank you so much for sharing what you did. <laughs> you know, but mostly I'm grateful to all of you and to IEAA. Um, you are what helped keep me sober and keep me coming back every year. I know many of you have made extraordinary sacrifices to be here. I know the altitude's not easy. I've got my oxygen sitting right here. Um, and I live here. So it's, I hope you've had a great time experiencing our little slice of heaven where we live. And it's my hope that uh, your programs of recovery are going to be rejuvenated and that you're as anxious as I am to gather next year together again in Palm Desert. So, um, personally, I was truly humbled with my LAC asked me to give this talk today. And, and I hope by sharing my own personal journey, spiritual journey of recovery, that those of you that might be struggling a little bit with that same connection might find some inspiration today. Page 62 in the big book tells us, this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter, in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. God is the principal; we are the agents. God is the parent, and we are the children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed through freedom. So I, uh, just a month ago, I was home in Wyoming. Um, Celebrating my mother's 80th birthday with my family. We had a big family reunion over the 4th of July. And and I was watching my little great niece, and she walked up to her mother one day while I was there. And she said, Mom, you know, I just, you know, how did the human race come about? How did we end up being? And her mom sat her down and very, very quietly talked to her. She said, Well, you know, honey, God created everything, and then he created Adam and Eve. And they had children, and that's how the human race came to be. She wasn't quite sure she bought that answer, so a little later I saw her talking to her dad, who's my nephew, and she asked him the same question, Dad, how did the human race come around? And he said, well, honey, a long time ago there were a lot of apes in the world, and they evolved, and now we have the human race. Now she was really confused, you know. So I, I kind of watched her, and she went back to her mom. She says, Mom, I don't understand. She says, You said that God created humans, and that's why we're here. And Dad says we evolved from, from apes. Her mom looked at her, and she says, Well, Dad told you about his side of the family, and I told you about mine. <laughs> you know, a lot of things in this program are all about perspective, Right? And even the presidents have a little trouble with perspective. I, I heard that uh, George and Laura had been invited to the White House to kind of get a tour when he got elected, and, and they met with Bill and Hillary for iced tea and stuff in the garden and were kind of just getting acclimated to the White House. And George said, well, Bill, I really need to use the restroom. Can I borrow your restroom? And Bill said, sure, no problem. And George came back out, and he was so excited, he talked to Laura a little later that night and says, I can't believe it. Bill Clinton's got a gold urinal in his bathroom. He says, you know, when I get inaugurated, maybe I could have a gold urinal too, but of course I'm not that pretentious. So a little later, uh, Laura was sharing this with Hillary, saying, you know, George was really impressed that Bill had this gold urinal in the bathroom. And that night, Hillary and Bill were getting ready to go to bed, and Hillary looked over at Bill and says, hey, man, I figured out who pissed in your uh, saxophone. Yeah. Perspective. It's all about perspective. And to me, that's the beauty of 12-step programs. There is room for everyone's perspective on spirituality in these rooms. For me to speak honestly, I can only talk from my own perspective. You know, for years, I've struggled to name that which I can't define, the, the divine that I can't define in this, in this world I choose to call my own spiritual source, my own spiritual resource, I choose to use the word God for me. When I use that word, I'm not trying to define my concept or anyone else's concept of what their divine source is. It's just a word that the human race has used for hundreds and hundreds of years to describe something that we don't know how to describe. And it works for us. So when I use that word today, that's what I'm referring to. And I'm so grateful for the simplicity of this program and the spirituality in this program. You know, it's pretty evident that I'm a pretty insane person without it. You know, for me, sometimes the world seems to start spinning faster and faster, and and it gets to the point where everything is a blur. And yet I believe for me there's a cushion of calm at the center of my life where I live in union with my spirituality. You know, the world's a really needy place. I shouldn't go there for sustenance. I need to find something else. If we can find that completeness of our spirituality, it's only then that we can really reach out and help someone else, that we can really meet their own needs. For this alcoholic, my spiritual connection is the solution to all of my problems today. To begin my spiritual journey of recovery, I'd like to open by sharing a poem by Carol Bylick. This is a poem that was used by Richard Rohr to title his book, Breathing Underwater. Some of you may have read that. I built my house by the sea, not on the sands, mind you, not on the shifting sand, strong house by a strong sea, and we got acquainted, the sea and I, good neighbors, not that we spoke much, we met in silences. Respectful, keeping our distance. But looking our thoughts across that fence of sand. Always the sand our barrier. Always the sand between. And then one day, and I still don't know how it happened, the sea came. Without warning, without welcome even. Not sudden and swift, but a shifting across the sand like wine. Less like the flow of water than the flow of blood. Slow but coming. Slow, flowing like an open wound. And I thought of flight, and I thought of drowning, and I thought of death. And while I thought, the sea crept higher until it reached my door. And then I knew there was neither flight Nor death, nor drowning. That when the sea comes calling, you stop being neighbors and you give your house for a coral castle and you learn to breathe underwater. This is where I found myself one dark morning in 1996, struggling to breathe underwater and not quite sure what had happened to me. It's taken me a lot of step work, meditation, and praying to understand how I was overwhelmed by that sea. I grew up in a small town in Wyoming of a thousand people, and I remember my father always cautioning me about the dangers of drinking alone or drinking too much um, and, uh, and drinking too often. I didn't learn until high school that his parents were known as two of the town drunks who used to beat each other up on my dad and his brother Lived in, or watched from the bushes outside their house. Because he always wanted me to respect my grandparents. But it was this same grandmother when I was eight years old that started asking me to come and help her in the kitchen when we went over there for dinner. And she'd pull her whiskey out from above the uh, kitchen sink and pour herself a glass, and then she'd pour me a little shot and give it to me, and she'd pat me on the head and say, My little man. And I felt so important and so grown up. Now, my great grandparents in that town had helped establish one of the small churches there, which my family attended. And there I learned all about this thing called God. The whole idea was really well defined, not to be questioned, and available on Sunday mornings. What I like to call my God in the box, all wrapped up with a big, beautiful bow. I built a strong belief in this God in the box. Enough of a belief that as an eighth grader, I found myself praying one night what direction my life should take. I remember hearing clearly that night that I should go to medical school and become a physician. While in high school, I experienced my first two drunks and what an experience they were. I was that guy in high school who um, didn't wear jeans, you know, button down shirts, slacks, that kind of thing. So in my junior year, I was feeling a little outside the norm. Any of you relate to that? Um, So I decided to break out of my box and and attend homecoming with a group of friends. And one of those friends scored a a couple of six-packs of 3-2 beer and a pint of blackberry brandy. Blackberry brandy and 3-2 beer. After the dance, a little later on, I finally managed to drive home. This was not a big deal. I lived around the block. Um, And I sat in the garage for an hour trying to sober up. I thought I finally had it enough together to walk into the house. Now, I'm a little older than some of you, but back in the day we used to have humidifiers in the living room for great big pieces of furniture that you poured tons of water in. I fell over that and knocked water everywhere in the house. And I was sick for two days. The following year, I mastered the courage to ask a girl to prom. And after the dance, a group of us headed up in the hills outside of town to party like people do after high school dances. This time, there was real beer and gallons of rhubarb wine. Some of you are well aware I've not dated many women in my life. Um, And this first one taught me a lot. In my drunkenness, I noticed what was going on in the other cars around me, and so my best thinking was I thought that my date would also perhaps like me to gently caress some of the parts of her anatomy. Um, wrong assumption. That was a slap heard around the world, and again, my perspective was not real good, right? Once more, I was sick for two days, and since my parents could not imagine that their perfect little son, was drinking alcohol, I remember suffering through both an upper and lower GI trying to find out what was wrong with my stomach. Thirty years later, one of the hardest amends I had to make was letting my parents know that I was just hung over, that I didn't have ulcers back when I was in high school. Um, As far as this story is concerned, my college and medical school years are not real um, eventful. However, a couple of things stand out for me. In college, I began looking for a spirituality which was better and different than the one from my childhood. I'd found a group of fundamentalist friends who told me that the things I'd believed in all my life were wrong, and unless I adhered to their way of thinking, I was going to perish in eternal damnation, whatever that meant. So I jumped into this with both feet. Right? They had the answers. That's what I'd been looking for. And after about one and a half years, it became real apparent to me that my God in the Box had suddenly gotten much smaller and much more tightly wrapped. It was shortly after this that I found LSD. And so did the cow I was talking to in the middle of the pasture. (laughs) We both had a really good spiritual experience. But I'd also crossed a line I discovered that chemicals could change how I felt and didn't give me a hangover like alcohol did. Other drugs had become part of my alcoholic story. In order to enjoy and cope with life, I began moving the lines of my values and my integrity. This involved a little more LSD and a lot more alcohol, speed, and pot. But as many of you are aware... If you want to succeed in medical school, there's not a whole lot of time for substance abuse. Our drinking there was usually limited to every six weeks, the week after finals and the week after midterms. But my my medical school friends had a really good supply of good pot. And I remember getting really high the whole year during cardiology. And my best thinking was that if I'd taken the course high and studied high, that I probably ought to take the exams high as well. And so I would smoke before I went to my cardiology exams. And we took the exams under fluorescent lights. So the EKG lines were wavy anyway. And then trying to figure out the... the, Anyway, cardiology was not my strong point. Um, Anyway... I do remember that medical school left me with a deep spiritual feeling about the creative miracle of life, and I wanted to explore that more. It was during my internship, though, that my drinking really began to escalate. As interns, we worked long and hard, and I tended to play that way as well. My best friend in internship and I shared a lot of experiences together that I can't share with you because there's young people here um, that year, and at his house one night, he pulled out a vial of Robaxin that he had stolen from the emergency room. He said, Chuck, you should try just shooting up a little bit of this. This really feels good. You know, I'm from Wyoming. You don't do that kind of stuff, right? And so I said no for about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, that was the last month of our internship, and I only did that one more time. But I would crossed that line again. There I was with a needle in my arm. The next month, uh, one of the physicians at our hospital had passed away that spring, and the hospital acquired the practice, hoping that I would take it over and continue to feed the hospital. So I took over this practice in downtown Denver, and uh, soon became apparent to me that it maintained itself by maintaining our um, by catering to the drug needs of the indigent population in that part of town. There was a tall, one of those really tall, wide, narrow medicine cabinets from the old days you're all familiar with. It was filled with vials of Talwin. I mean, cases of Talwin in this thing. And uh, I soon discovered that the receptionist I inherited was using that Talwin herself three or four times a day in the bathroom. This was not the way I wanted to practice medicine. I threw out all the tall one, and along with it, the receptionist, and nearly 80% of my patient load. The only scheduled drug from that day on I would ever have in my office was a Carvajet of Valium in case somebody seized. This was not how I wanted to practice medicine. But, I'm an osteopath, I took care of a lot of bad backs, so I needed some type of analgesic in the office, so I went to the PDR. And Looked under analgesics and started reading down and came across several. And there was one Stadol that was there, an agonist antagonist. And the PDR said it was non-addicting. So there we go. I will get a vial of Stadol just to keep in the office in case somebody really needs an injection for it. And so I did that. Um, I'd lost 80% of my patient load. Things were a little difficult that year and stressful And again, my perspective, my best thinking, thought, well, just a half a dose of that might relax me like the Robaxin did. Maybe once or twice a week when I go home, I'll just inject a half a dose of that. I'm a doctor. I'm good. Um, And that'll be okay. A year and a half later, it took 20 injections a day of that half a dose to keep me from going into withdrawal. I remember driving home from Denver to Wyoming, which is about 140 miles, and all I remember of that trip was stopping at the rest area in Fort Collins to inject myself again. The next morning, I woke up with my mother and father and our family doctor for Art and Carol, Dr. Stessel, um, standing over my bed, um, getting ready to admit me to the hospital in Cheyenne. So they admitted me to the hospital, but they didn't check any of my bags. Put an IV in my arm, left my bags beside the bed. Well, I had two vials of Stadol left with an IV in my arm. This was great, you know. I didn't have to look for a vein anymore because they'd all blown long ago. Um, And so um, then the Stadol ran out. Opiate withdrawal was horrible, even if it's not addicting, right? (laughs) For any of you that don't know I'm being facetious, Stadol is very addicting. Um, Don't go there. After detoxing, because my insurance wouldn't cover substance abuse treatment, I admitted myself to the psych unit at my admitting hospital in Denver. And after leaving treatment there, my practice actually began to grow, and I moved it to a new location in Denver on Capitol Hill, which is the heart of the LGBT community. Searching again for that spiritual connection, which had been lost in the narcotics, I began attending a little church in that community, which was open and affirming. And in 1983, my first patient with HIV walked into my office. My heart went out to this man. Word got out that I was comfortable treating HIV, and I soon found myself with over 1,800 people either living with or affected by this disease in my practice, which meant that in the 80s I was losing 30 to 40 young men in their 20s and 30s every year out of my practice. In 1988, I'd been clean and sober five years, but without the help of a 12-step program. The stress was becoming overwhelming, and I had no spiritual program or any coping skills to draw upon. And again, Chuck's best thinking told me three things. One, that I couldn't use drugs to relax anymore because I was an addict. Two, I didn't like to drink because I always got drunk and had a hangover, and I didn't like how that felt. And three, that being a doctor, growing up in a family of alcoholics, I knew what alcoholism would look like. Therefore, I could have a cocktail or two in the evening, and I would be just fine. That's my best thinking. Once I had opened that door, there was no turning back. I became the one who finished everyone else's drinks as we left the bar. I was the designated driver for my friends because my tolerance was higher than theirs. One night I drove a friend home from the party, and I ended up staying there because he decided once we got to his house that maybe I was too drunk to drive home. The next morning we got up, and he had a two-car garage, but his Cadillac was parked sideways in it. I still have no idea how I did that, but and we had a hell of a time getting it out of there. So, um. During that time, I met someone who had become my life partner. Our relationship involved a lot of drinking and driving between Denver and Colorado Springs. 1992, we were invited by some friends to New Orleans for a sinking of the Titanic party that happened every year. And we went together as the John Jacob Astors. Guess who was Mrs. Astor? After walking drunk in two-inch heels over the French Quarter cobblestone streets... You need to watch me when I come to New Orleans, Kelly. Um, I found myself in a bar at three in the morning, and the bartender was very accommodating. He offered me all the drinks I wanted if I would do a strip tease on the bar. We're not even going to talk about my best thinking that night. (laughs) But times got bad as well. Alcohol took me down further than opiates ever did. I began having withdrawal symptoms during the day, and as hard as I tried to fight it off, I found myself having to have a little drink at lunch, and eventually a little bit before work. I was still attending my little church, till one Sunday morning this sweet little lady sat in front of me, and she turned around and she says, Chuck, I think you would enjoy church more if you didn't drink quite so much before you came. I never went back. 1995, my body required large amounts of vodka daily to stay out of withdrawal. My hands shook so badly that I had difficulty reading my own charting. I was sure that if I prayed hard enough and the stress let up enough for just a few days, I would be okay. I was a doctor, for God's sake. I was not going to be labeled an alcoholic. One morning, I woke up in April of 1996 to get ready for the office. My hands and body were real sticky. I got out of bed and discovered that my sheets, my torso, were covered in various stages of coagulated blood. To calm my nerves, I finished the drink on the nightstand that was left there from the night before and drove myself to the office when I got cleaned up. But instead of going to work, I went upstairs to our Colorado Physicians Health Office, which happened to be in the same building and pleaded with them for help. I said, I want help before I hurt somebody. That afternoon, I found myself detoxing in a local hospital's treatment unit. My third day of detox, the doctor sat down with me to go over my lab work that they had drawn when I was admitted. He said, I'd been bleeding from a small scratch on my nose because my platelet count was 12,000, and that I had severe liver damage. But he said, there's more. They'd run some other tests, and by the way, this was illegal in Colorado at that time, but they did it anyway, and they found out I was HIV positive. In fact, my CD4 count was below 200, which meant I had a diagnosis of AIDS. He told me that if I continued to drink, I wouldn't survive more than two months. And he told me that if I stopped drinking, they might be able to keep me alive for two years. I'd never felt so separated from and so much in need of my God as I did that next few days. I'd seen many people die from AIDS. And I wasn't aware that there was a new drug protocol going to be released that year. Alcohol might be the easier, softer way. It took me nearly a week to decide whether or not I was going to get sober. You might think this was my bottom, but I believe that our bottoms are not about physical loss. I believe they're about spiritual loss. So I graduated their inpatient program, and in the third week of the outpatient program, I started feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good about myself. Life was getting better again. I felt healthy. So I decided to see if I could drink like normal people And I bought a half a pint of vodka after group on my way home. I was sure that I could do this. That was a Thursday night. By Saturday morning, I had to call a cab to come and pick me up off the living room floor and take me back to this treatment center. They detoxed me, but they told me I couldn't come back to treatment, that I'd flunked. So I've never flunked anything in my life. So will you flunk this. My only F, and it was in drinking. The Physicians Health Program met with them, and they wanted to send me to some doctor's farm in the southeast. Now, I would like to identify that one, but I don't remember which one they said it was. So I'm sorry, Farley and Talbot and everybody else, but some, I was supposed to end up there, and I never did. I refused because I had a private practice, and I couldn't afford to be gone all that time. I mean, it made perfect sense to me. In reality, I wanted to find a way to control my own addiction problems, and I wasn't ready to surrender yet. I agreed to voluntarily inactivate my license, sold my practice, and moved in with my friend in Colorado Springs. For the next nine months, I struggled to stay sober on my own. I'd virtually lost any spiritual life I had, except those foxhole prayers with, which with most of us are familiar my partner gave up all hard liquor and said he would just drink box wine. Well, it was lots of box wine. Now, I didn't like box wine, but I had a quart jar of it stashed under the mattress just in case I ran out so that I would have my stash. It took, I tried to dose myself, so I bought the little miniature bottles to, so I could dose my vodka, maybe stretch it out. It took two of those every two hours for me not to go into withdrawal, which meant around the clock. Over those nine months, I detoxed two more times, nearly dying from pneumonia one of those times. On March 11, 1997, after consuming my daily half gallon of vodka, I found myself standing in the doorway of my bedroom. There's this big picture of a path through the forest, it was a really dark picture. I have that in my basement now. I keep that because that's the picture I stared at at this moment. In my hand was a large red 100 milligram capsule of Librium. I remember thinking that all I wanted to do was sleep longer than two hours and escape all this pain. I was as soul sick as I'd ever dreamt I could be. I'd reached that point of desperation where I couldn't live with it and I couldn't live without it. And I knew if I took that Librium, that I'd sleep. But I also knew that I might never wake up. And I didn't care. I didn't want to die, but I didn't care if I did. And in my last desperate prayer, I asked for forgiveness and took that capsule. My sobriety date is March 13th, 1997, two days later. I awoke two days later in a clean bed. And confused. To this day, I have no recollection of those two days. I hadn't blacked out. Alcohol had taken those two days of my life, which I can never get back. The sea had reached my door, and I knew that there was neither flight, nor death, nor drowning. We had stopped being neighbors, and now it was time that I learned to breathe underwater. This was my bottom and my moment of surrender. And not wanting to be part of my dying anymore, my partner agreed to drop me off at our local psych hospital to detox. Little did I know that this particular detox was going to lead to DTs. I did not want any visitors or any help. I needed to do this for myself. Following detox, DJ- <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Following detox, I committed to an outpatient men's group, which met twice a week um, on the other nights of the week. Which met twice a week, and on the other nights of the week, we had to go to AA meetings. And as, long, as much as I knew I didn't belong in AA, I thought that maybe I could tough it out for 90 days and I might learn something from you all. You know, and you, you didn't make a whole lot of sense to me those first few weeks. My emotions were all over the place, and I sat isolated against the wall. I was pissed off that you didn't understand me. I felt like a total failure to myself, to my patients, and to this packaged-up God which had asked me so many years ago to devote myself to healing. Alcohol had taken this spiritual relationship and turned it into something very distant and cold. But this meeting always closed with the ninth-step promises And one of them struck a chord with me. You will comprehend the word serenity and you will know peace. Really? It's all I ever wanted in my life was some peace and serenity. And you say that's possible in these rooms? You know, in the 12 by 12, in the second step, it describes how difficult it is for someone raised with a strong belief in God. To rediscover their spirituality that will work for them in these rooms. I was that person. My God in the box had not expected me, had expected me to surmount all the obstacles in my life, not surrender to them. My God in the box had asked me to be a healer, and I'd failed. I had pleaded with my God in the box to relieve me of my alcohol's control over my life, and instead I was sitting in an AA meeting. Again, my perspective reminds me of a, our little 80-year-old organist at church. Her name's Beatrice. She keeps a cut glass bowl of water on her organ. And I, I was talking to her one day, and I noticed a condom floating in it. So I asked her about it. I said, what is this, Beatrice? She says, oh, yeah, I found it in the park the other day, and I, I read the directions. It said to place it on the organ, keep it wet, and it'll prevent disease. <laughs> she says, you know, I haven't had a cold all year. So again, perspective, right? (laughs) Despite my best thinking, I had been placed exactly where I needed to be. I had decided to give you all 90 days, and by the second week, I'd already worked all the steps in my head while I sat there. Thank God I stayed for 90 days because it took that long for me to begin to have some rational thinking. I began to have happy days like some of you, and I wanted more of them. So I decided to stay a whole year. And it was during that next year that my life really began to change. I started listening and working a set of steps with a group of men, and I began to hang out before and after the meetings. One man dogged my tail and convinced me that the fellowship existed outside the rooms of AA and that I ought to get involved outside the rooms. So I realized, all of a sudden, I thought, that God had opened the gates of heaven and let me in. But after doing some step work, I realized that what had happened was God had opened the gates of hell and let me out. Admit it, most of us really don't like listening to how it works. We tolerate it, put up with it, because we know that there may be a newcomer in the room that needs to hear it. But most of us are texting or daydreaming or something else when it's being read. Well, I was that newcomer. At every meeting, you read that, and I kept hearing the phrase, a God of my understanding. For 40 years of my life, my God had been of somebody else's understanding. This God had been wrapped up so tightly and neatly in someone else's box that I nearly died from addiction, trying to figure out the meaning in my life. One of the greatest gifts I've ever been given was when these rooms allowed me to open up that box and allow my concept of a spiritual source to be big enough to keep me sober. This became particularly evident to me shortly after my second anniversary in AA, when following routine surgery, my father developed respiratory distress syndrome, and after six weeks, we had to turn the ventilator off. Nine months later, I discovered my life partner dead one morning. I found myself amazed at the fact that I had no compulsion to drink after either of these events. I was learning to breathe underwater. Mike R. in one of his talks um, relates steps one through three to the uh, description of how belief leads to hope, leads to faith. If I'm a newcomer to the rooms, I might hear you say that something worked for you. And if I trust your words more, I might just believe you. I can then ask you, how did you do that? And this gives me hope that perhaps I can take this action as well and get the same results. And if I repeat this action and this this experience and, and experience a similar result every time, then that is the beginning of faith. During my early recovery, I began attending church again in Colorado Springs. And this particular pastor spoke of redemption in this life and not as part of some cosmic hereafter. This church, just like AA, encouraged individuals to experience their own relationship with their concept of God. Once I had opened up this God in the box, I could no longer define it by human values or attributes. My understanding of God was able to keep growing along with my sobriety. But I still longed for this personal experience, this personal relationship that I wanted with this higher power. I was on a retreat one weekend up in the mountains, and I was at a small chapel, and I felt a touch on my shoulder. And I was acutely aware that this divine presence had always been there and always would be. To paraphrase the big book, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of a spiritual source. I was reassured that the peace I felt had always been around me just waiting for a place to land. It's the same feeling of peace that I get in an AA meeting when I see the light come on in a newcomer's face. It's the same feeling of peace I got when my first atheist sponsee came to me and said, I can believe in the process. Is that good enough? And I said, yes. It's the same feeling of peace that I get when I'm here with you all. Today, I rely on my personal faith tradition to keep me grounded in my spiritual journey through my ritual and its community. But I rely on AA as my source of spiritual experiences through its ritual and community. There's a common spiritual inspiration between the two, which comes from a collective consciousness. Unlike many religions, however, in 12-step work, we don't need to name, understand, or describe that universal source which keeps us sober. All that's important is that that source is working in our sobriety. As my hope was turning into faith, I discovered an organization I didn't even realize existed, the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Met many of you there. I was suddenly aware that I might be qualified to work in the field of addiction. Who thought? Perhaps my life wasn't a waste after all. Maybe I could use all of this experience to continue my vocation in healing. I was ASAM certified in 2004 and am currently a diplomat in the American Board of Addiction Medicine. In 2007, I was visiting with the house manager of a sober living home in my town, and we were both bemoaning the fact that there was no affordable residential treatment in our state, let alone in our area of the state. And over coffee a few days later, he agreed to move in with me, and we started working on creating our own nonprofit treatment center. Approximately 15 months later, the center opened, and I was convinced that this was the fruit of my experience. I was finally returning to the healing vocation to which I had been called. And yet, once again, my perspective was mistaken. A year later, in another mountaintop experience, it became very clear to me that um, I wasn't done yet. I'd experienced how difficult it was for physicians to speak to their brokenness in life, and it became apparent to me That many clergy are in the same position when they're broken. So, who cares for the caregiver? Who pastors the pastor? I came up with all sorts of excuses why I shouldn't walk through this door called seminary. But I remember that very day, I remember that every day I have is a gift that I'm alive. Not only had I defied death at my own hands with the benzo and alcohol, but that at best I only had two years to live in 1996, and here I stood. Each new day of my life I tried to view as a gift of grace. The doors through which I had walked in sobriety had all been part of this gift. I had repeated this action enough times that my faith once again allowed me to walk through this door and begin a new journey. However, even in these life-affirming moments, obstacles continue to be placed on our path. Three months before I was to start school, I was told I had a 95% blockage of my coronary, and that I needed immediate bypass surgery. My post-op was complicated by a pleural effusion, and it was unclear if I'd be healthy enough to even start school in the fall. My sponsor and my A community brought meetings to my house. Supported me through my pain and encouraged my recovery. By September, I was strong enough to start my education. Now, I knew that my role and my commitment to the treatment center I co founded was going to change as I neared graduation four years later. But alcoholism is a pervasive disease. And last January, one of our senior staff, during a relapse, made some really bad choices which led to the closing of the rehab just before its fifth anniversary. My heart was breaking for our clients and our staff. I was filled with fear over the ramifications about how this would affect my reputation and my my work in school and my new career. And again, thank God for sponsors. Over and over, he would just say to me, where's your higher power in all this, Chuck? I was reminded to keep my God with me sweetly, is what he said, which allowed me to sleep at night. And over a period of a few weeks, it became apparent that as one door closes, another opens. My plan for my ministry to caregivers centered on my affiliation with his treatment center, which was now gone. Notice I said, my plan. As I neared graduation of my ordination process, I wasn't clear how this call to pastor pastors was going to be manifested, but I've been taught to plan for the future without expectations. A former classmate of mine introduced me to the founder of a nonprofit in Denver. She said that for the past several months, she couldn't get me out of her mind knowing that I somehow needed to learn about this place called the Institute for Life and Care. I graduated with my Master's in Divinity on June 5th at 60 years of age, and two weeks later I was commissioned as a clergy in the United Methodist Church. My church has allowed me to take a position with the Institute for Life and Care whose mission is to provide spiritual care and guidance for first responders and professional caregivers. My role will be to develop programs specifically geared towards physicians and clergy with an emphasis on brokenness, including addictions. AA teaches me that I need to give in order to receive. I find that our goal in life is to find that gift, but our purpose in life is to give it away. All of this was happening last spring, just as I was reminded how grateful I was for another door which had opened five years ago. That was when Brett and I God bless you, brother, received the bid to hold this year's IDAA conference in Colorado. Through service work, I've stayed sober and developed a new fellowship of friends who accept and support me. As I look back on my story, it's helpful for me to remember that it's often the people who criticize your life that are usually the same people who don't know the price you paid to get where you are today. In IDAA, we know the price you paid to get here today. As members of IDAA, we're here to support and mentor each other and offer, offer hope and faith as we walk through those doors of life. Macrina Biedeker speaks to that price we've all paid in her poem, My Wound. Once there was a wound... It was no ordinary wound. It was my wound. We had lived together long. I yearned to be free of this wound. I wanted the bleeding to stop. Yet, if the truth be known, I felt a strange kind of gratitude for this wound. It made me tremendously open to grace, vulnerable to God's mercy. A beautiful believing in me that that I have named faith kept growing. Daring me to reach out for what I could not see. This wound had made me open. I was ready for grace. So one day I reached. There I was, thick in the crowd, bleeding and believing, and I reached. At first I reached for what I could see, the fringe of a garment. But my reaching didn't stop there. For someone, something, Reached back into me. A grace I couldn't see flowed through me. A power I didn't understand began to fill the depths of me. And trembling, I was called forth to claim my wholeness. The bleeding had left me, the believing remained. And as strange as this may sound, I have never lost my gratitude for the wound that made me so open. Grace. Richard Rohr suggests that only people who have suffered in some way can save one another, exactly as is taught in the 12 steps. Only those who have tried to breathe underwater know how important breathing really is, or unless you're in Keystone at this altitude. (laughs) We are those people teaching each other to breathe underwater. Today, the only thing I fear more than taking a drink is losing my relationship with my personal source of meaning, which I call God. My spirituality is the keystone of my sobriety, and without that keystone, the arch of my sobriety would collapse. It is my hope that each of you has or will find that keystone in your recovery. I'd like to close with my favorite set of promises found in step 10. And we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor, and if tempted, we'll recoil from it as a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given to us without any thought or effort on our part. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We've not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. God bless you all.